and welcome to A Thinkin' with me, James Harding. In this series of Thinkins, we're setting out to examine the battle for truth. We relive one moment in the news that's come to define an issue or an argument. Let's say Twitter banning Trump and what that tells us about free speech, or Dominic Cummings' trip to Barnard Castle and the press conference that followed it and what that tells us about the mainstream media's coverage of politics. Or, for example, the creation of Facebook's own Supreme Court and the power of the platforms. And then, in listening to the arguments, I hope that we come to a clearer sense of what to think. Today, we're considering Grenfell Tower and the contest between truth and justice. Brigade. Yeah, hello, hi, in the fire, flat 16 Greenfield Tower. Sorry, your fire where? Flat 16 Greenfield Tower. Tonight at 6, a huge fire engulfs a tower block in London. At least 12 people have been killed, dozens injured, and the death toll is expected to rise. It's thought Grenfell Tower was home to more than 500 people. The fire started at 1 in the morning, and emergency services were there within minutes. And as of this morning, I'm afraid to say there are now 79 people that we believe are either dead or missing and I have sadly have to presume are dead. Disorientated and terrified, those who could struggled to safety. Others stuck to the established advice, stay where you are. That's why I am today ordering a full public inquiry into this disaster. We need to know what happened. As council leader, I have to accept my share of responsibility for these perceived failings. Pressure had been mounting on the council following intense criticism of the way the disaster had been handled from day one. But as a precaution, the government has arranged to test cladding in all relevant tower blocks. Mr Speaker, shortly before I came to the chamber, I was informed that a number of these tests have come back as combustible. He is the retired judge whose task is to determine the truth about one of Britain's worst disasters. Sir Martin Morbig today viewed the flowers left the victims of Grenfell Tower. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. As I hope you'll hear in this episode of The Battle for Truth, we're going to grapple with the role of the public inquiry after a tragic event, what used to be the official reckoning with a painful truth. 
And it forced me to think about how the pursuit of truth might, in fact, derail and delay the pursuit of justice, how disconnected it all can be from social, institutional change. As you'll hear, we examine the extent to which a public inquiry is a device to diffuse public anger, a politician's tool to kick a crisis of public trust into the long grass. We come, I think, to the helpful view that these quote-unquote public inquiries are too often government inquiries, i.e. those in power set the terms and so the outcomes. And we consider whether the internet age has turned the idea of the public inquiry on its head. All I hope you'll find to a point. What should a COVID inquiry do? To help me get to grips with all this, the public inquiry, truth and justice, I'm joined by Yvette Williams, who's a justice for Grenfell campaigner, by Kate Lamble, who's the presenter of the BBC's Grenfell Tower Inquiry podcast, by Sir Lawrence Friedman, who's the Emeritus Professor of War Studies at King's College and sat as a member of the Chilcot Inquiry into the war in Iraq. Eamon McCann, who's a journalist and activist and who campaigned for decades for the Bloody Sunday families, and my colleague, the contributing editor at Tortoise, Chris Cook. In the past, after a tragic event, the narrative has often been seized by those in power, the police in the case of Hillsborough, or the army after Bloody Sunday. And then, years of campaigning leads eventually to a public inquiry, which, at least in those two cases, finally vindicated the campaigner's version of events. But with Grenfell, you get the feeling it's different. The accepted narrative originally came from campaigners. In fact, it was all over social media from day one, one of institutional indifference, discrimination, social cleansing and gentrification. Blame focused on the council. And then the public inquiry. It so far moved away from that and towards a failure of building regulations. Yvette, you were there that night. What, what do you think? Has the public inquiry got you any closer to understanding who or what was responsible for the Grenfell Tower fire? I think we are getting some way to the truth. However, it would be a travesty if the story of Grenfell was told in the future as merely a housing or cladding issue. I think building sector corruption is huge in this, but there is a huge lead-up to how that fire at Grenfell happened. And it's important that in telling the truth, that the whole truth and nothing but the truth is told around it. The terms of reference for the inquiry is too narrow. It should be much broader. And I think there are a huge host of other factors that risk not being looked at. And just to explain that, if you would, Yvette, is it that what's happening in the inquiry is that it is identifying truths, i.e. it's identifying significant facts, but not giving a perspective or context, i.e. that it doesn't see the wood for the trees? Yeah, and I think part of that is the order, the chronology of how the inquiry is, is set up. So actually, phase two and the lead up to the fire was crucial to be heard first because that would then put what happened on the night of the fire into that context and be able to explore those other reasons around outsourcing of public companies, you know, deregulation, etc. That needed to come first for people to then get a true and real understanding of what happened on the night. And actually the inquiry starts with Act 2, Scene 1, rather than starting at Act 1. 
And I think that has caused some confusion. Your campaign is called Justice for Grenfell. It's not truth about Grenfell. Do, do you feel as though you pretty much know the truth about Grenfell? Your issue is how do you get justice? I think justice is the key component and justice looks very different to different people. For instance, the bereaved families, for them, prosecution and people facing, you know, the rule of law and the outcome of that makes up a huger part of justice for them. just want to understand exactly what your frustration is with the public inquiry then, because it seems as though you're saying, look, you, you wish a public inquiry could do more, but, but we know that a public inquiry is not in that sense a, a criminal court or even a court of justice. It's intended to try and understand what happened, get to the truth of what happened, and if possible, learn some lessons. What's your frustration then with the public inquiry's response to Grenfell? What was actually promised here at the beginning, once Theresa May had said there will be a public inquiry, I mean, people were not confident in that. They were given reassurances that a criminal investigation would run side by side. And I think that made people have more confidence in the inquiry process. We are then halfway through phase one, where we are then told, actually, the criminal investigation is going to conclude after the end of the inquiry. And I think that's where trust and confidence kind of decreased again in the public inquiry, because I think given the choice, they perhaps would have preferred the criminal investigation to come first and then lessons afterwards. I think the other key thing about the inquiry is that we're hearing some shocking things, you know, failed fire tests that were pushed through, failed certificates, etc. And we were given the understanding again that as urgent things came up during the inquiry, that the government would deal with those things one by one as they came up. And we have seen with this cladding scandal that that hasn't happened. Yvette, thank you. I'm, I'm going to come back to you in a moment, if I might. But I wanted to ask Kate Lamble. You've sat, I think, Kate, through every hour of the uh, Grenfell Tower inquiry so far. And I just wonder whether my characterisation at the top is fair, that the blame has been shifted, if you like, from the council to contractors and the overseers of building regulations. Is that the fair to say that the drift of the narrative really has sh- shifted? Part of this is due to the way the inquiry is set up. So we're just about to come to the phase of the inquiry, the module of the inquiry that's going to hear from the RBKC, the local council, the tenant management organisation which ran the building. So it's not that we won't hear from those witnesses and that we won't hear that there were shortcomings in that part. But so far it has focused firstly on what happened on the night of the fire, which largely involves failures from the firefighters. And secondly, we've had this long discussion about the refurbishment of the building. So the architects, the designers, the manufacturers, the testing and the certifiers, all of whom were involved in the materials which were placed on the building, which have been found to be the main cause of the spread of the fire. And so when we talk about blame, I don't think it's as simple as one person or one organisation being to blame. Essentially, if you look at Grenfell, there's millions and millions of tiny decisions that happened both in the refurbishment and on the night of the fire that contributed to what happened. So if we look at phase two and and 
the refurbishment of that building. It's basically been essentially the searing indictment of the construction industry as a whole. So we've been hearing evidence about the refurbishment since January last year, and we haven't heard one witness who did a good job from beginning to end. So we've heard that all four manufacturers of the main products put on the outside of the tower had issues with their testing. Both the certification bodies have admitted errors. The architect said it was an afterthought to check whether materials were compliant, and so on and so forth. So it's a complicated web of contractors and subcontractors and decisions taking place over years that fed into this one disaster. And Kate, what do you say to people who worry that the nature of the public inquiry is that it does focus on those specifics, that it, as you say, identifies those tiny decisions, it it paints that complex web, but as a result, it m- misses out on a structural lack of care, a systemic lack of care, and it's incapable of making a political judgment, an overall judgment, on the failures in positions of authority that led to the Grenfell Tower fire. There have been calls since the opening statements of phase one, so all the way back in 2018. One of the first things we heard from the lawyers, which we represent the bereaved survivors and the residents, for the inquiry's terms of reference to take into account wider issues of race and class. From the very beginning, people have been calling for that. And the inquiry has said that the terms of reference, what they're allowed to look at has been set by the government, that they're not in control of that, and that they've asked the government whether they should look at that. I mean, that's not to say that these issues won't come up when we talk about, you know, just after Easter, we're going to hear about the complaints that residents sent to the tenant management organisation and how those were taken into account. We've already heard some things um, when we talk about residents who complained about building work that were done on the outside of their house and how they felt ignored when people came round to look at it. So these issues come up, but they certainly bubble under and they're not being looked at in a way that many people would like them to be. And Yvette, is this your point about the terms of reference of the inquiry itself, that the government, to a certain extent, set certain things as out of bounds? Yeah, but on on the surface, give the impression that, you know, they are consulting with the bereaved survivors and community. People took a long time to kind of respond to that, knowing at the end of it that it is still kind of government control and that they have the last day. And I think there's something about the word public. Is it a public inquiry? Should they be called public inquiries or are they government inquiries? As you're speaking of it, I'm watching Lawrence Friedman listening to this with what looks, Lawrence, like a certain weary familiarity, because, of course, the truth about these public inquiries, or as uh, as Yvette puts it, these government inquiries, is that they're called in to examine deadly and tragic events, and by their nature, those events are complicated. I I suppose, I wonder whether we could just get your perspective on on the Iraq inquiry. What did you feel when that started was the question that you were being asked to answer? We were set up as a lesson learned. Um, And that was clearly not what most people were interested in. I mean, what most people were interested in was the decision-making, how we got into it. There'd been other inquiries on whether the government had, had lied on WMD. All of them said that that wasn't the problem, that the, the intelligence agencies believed what they were saying. And I think that was our conclusion too. And then there was the question of the aftermath, which was very messy. But again, it, it was about how would we been so unprepared? How would we got into another country and not had a good idea about what to do once we arrived with, with tragic consequences, as we know? So I think the government wanted, I mean, initially, Gordon Brown, who set it up, wanted it to be totally in secret. 
in secret, Lawrence, as in an entirely private inquiry? The model was the Frank's inquiry into the Falklands, which was a group of privy councillors, we became privy councillors to do this, who, who met in private and came up with not a bad account of what had happened, with, with some rather dodgy uh, conclusions at the end. Well, you know, we realised right from the start that, that, that we couldn't be party to that, with the hearings at the very least had to be in public. And I think for most people, it was the hearings that were the most significant part, because we're, we're not trained cross-examiners, but we, we put the questions. And of course, a lot of people unburdened themselves, something on their mind, and they wanted to say what they thought had happened. And then we decided to produce what we called a reliable account, which I think is what in the end we did, but took a heck of a long time to do it. And we did have the problem, we were dealing with classified materials, a lot of our effort was getting these materials declassified. So it's very different from Grandful, I think. Also, we're not judicial. We weren't judicial. I think that makes a very big difference. And just, just explain for me, would you, sorry, Lord, the difference between a public inquiry and a judicial inquiry? Well, well, public inquiries can be judicial. You just don't have a judge. If you look at Bloody Sunday, which was a judicial inquiry, that's why, I mean, we, we took a while, but they took forever. We were looking at nine years. They were looking at nine hours. Because, you know, as soon as you're, you, you're judicial, you've got lawyers acting the question, asking the questions. Everybody who's, got, who's a witness has got a lawyer with them. Uh, interested parties can have their lawyers along to ask their questions. And so it goes on. It's a very different exercise. For, for, forgive me for interrupting, Lawrence, but there is one similarity. The one, the one line that people would draw between the Grenfell Inquiry and the Chilcot Inquiry, the, the inquiry into the war in Iraq, is the suspicion that some people have that these inquiries are a political device that they essentially take the heat out of the public fury in the moment. There's a promise that lessons will be learned, but the truth is by the time those lessons are learned, you know, the world has just moved on, the issues have moved on. And I'm interested to know, amongst you and the others who sat on that inquiry, how worried were you that that was, in effect, what you were being used to do? Well, I mean, remember, we were set up a long time after the actual events, main events, and we, we, we set up a, as British troops left, but the um, we were looking at event. We were set up in two thousand and nine, and the big issues were two thousand and two, three, and a lot of lessons actually had been learned anyway by the time we came along. So I, I, that's why I thought the reliable account was important. Yeah, of course, the Iraq inquiry was not set up uh, with huge expectations. Let's be honest; people assumed that we were there to produce a whitewash, and that's why we took so long because. We decided we just had to get the evidence out. We, we could have produced a short report. We could have reported in a couple of years. But everybody would have said, You're, you know, where's this? Where's that? Why, why are you showing us this? I think we just had to do it in a way that showed that we'd been forensic, that we'd got out the information. We made a point of declassifying as much as we could, getting it on the website in order that if people disagreed with us, Okay, well, here's the you know you do a better job. Here's the evidence with which you can work. So, and that I think is a lasting value of the inquiry. I mean, we did we did have some lessons. The Ministry of Defence and others have taken them up quite actively, mainly on you know how to avoid groupthink and how to ensure people things are challenged and 
and so on. And you know, bas- but basically, the lesson people have already drawn is don't do that sort of thing again. Uh, and what about time in all of this, Lawrence? Because I, the curious thing is, we're holding these series of conversations on the battle for truth. Most of it today is about speed. Is about the fact that in the world of Twitter and private social networks, you know, that lies and untruths are just ripping across our networks. The complaint against public inquiries is the opposite, isn't it? Is that they're just so slow that by the time they actually come up with their vaunted truths, it's too late. I don't think it has to be like that. I genuinely think if you're looking ahead to a COVID inquiry, I don't see any reason why you can't have interim reports, draft analyses, draw in researches, because there's so much material out there. And it's all, you know, it doesn't have to be found. It has to be collated and interpreted. So I don't think it has to be like that. Just out of interest, for example, with Chilcot, even with Chilcot, or potentially even with the Grenfell Inquiry, would you have set the parameters or set requirements that there are staging posts along the way? It was my view that that was an option for us, but for a variety of reasons, it was quite difficult to do, not least in terms of how the hearings were organised, which came too early. I mean, we were, I mean, unlike what Yvette Williams is saying about Grenfell, we were given, in the end, we made it up. I mean, what, what our remit was. Uh, we, we, you know, we were given years and years to look at and any aspect of what had happened. You could do a different sort of inquiry with the same potential scope as you go along a lot quicker. I, I think we need to get out of the model of an inquiry is sort of the great and the good presiding over an extended period and then coming off with profound uh, comments right at the end. I think you can do it as you go along. Uh, That's interesting. I just want to bring Kate Lamble in just on this point about speed and time that that Lawrence was mentioning, because presumably the Grenfell inquiry, you know, could do what Lawrence is saying and start delivering some findings on an interim basis. The Grenfell inquiry specifically tried to address this problem. So the reason why they looked at what happened on the night of the fire first is because they say they felt that recommendations about how the emergency services acted, if they could bring those in as quickly as possible, they had the potential to save lives. And so that's why they did that at the phase at the beginning. They already brought out 46 recommendations on that subject. A year on, only four of them have been implemented in full. And that's because another problem that we have with public inquiries is that the inquiry itself cannot implement the recommendations. They're reliant on government to do that. And it's the government's choice whether they implement these recommendations. So the Grenfell inquiry has already put in place many, many recommendations, including very important things. So, for example, there was one for disabled residents in high-rise buildings who might have trouble getting out for them each to have a personal emergency evacuation plan. That recommendation was made by the inquiry. The government chose not to implement it in full because they thought there would be too much paperwork. Interesting, Kate. Thank you. I'm I'm going to come in a moment to Eamon and thank you for your patience, Eamon. But I do just want to pursue this point with, with Lawrence, the point that I made to Yvette about the distinction between justice and truth and whether in the event of a public inquiry, it's the case that truth can actually just get in the way of justice. It can you know, defer or or delay um, criminal proceedings or court proceedings. And in the case of the the Iraq inquiry, it can so dominate the debate about Iraq that any other forms of reputational or legal redress are shunted aside. Maybe just because I'm an academic that I thought truth was really very important and and that we needed to get it out. There were mythologies already still there developing around Iraq. Sometimes they were right, sometimes they were wrong, but, but, but our account had value in that. One similarity, I think, is that we, we had uh, the families of those, largely of the troops that had died, 
were a very active voice in favour of an inquiry. And we met with them at the start and, uh, and certainly right at the end. And they were quite a big influence. And they said to us that, you know, it was, the truth mattered to them. You know, also the families had different views. Some were just very angry. Others you know, felt this is what their, often their children, their, their sons had wanted to do, but didn't quite understand how it had happened, that they'd lost them. Eamon McCann, you campaigned for years to get the Bloody Sunday inquiry, and, and people would say that eventually, finally, uh, maybe you would say that it, that it did deliver uh, the truth, um, but did it ever deliver to your mind justice? No, I don't think it did deliver justice, and I also don't think that it delivered the whole truth. I think there were large swathes of the truth uh, excluded, and I think one of the reasons for that, or we're seeking a, a particular reason for that, it had to do with the political nature of a, a Bloody Sunday event and of the Bloody Sunday inquiry. And I was politicised from the outset in that the inquiry had been set up and was openly set up as part of the Irish peace process. Timing is very interesting in relation to the Bloody Sunday inquiry. It was announced by Mr Blair in January 1998, and of course the Good Friday Agreement came in April 1998. Now, not, not in any way a coincidence, absolutely not. And we get to, I covered it as a journalist as well as a, sort of in the end, as sort of an almost full-time activist, and they know that the Taoiseach, the Prime Minister of Southern Ireland, had told Mr Blair, look, if you want this peace process to work, you've got to handle Bloody Sunday. And that's one peculiarity of a Bloody Sunday and a Bloody Sunday inquiry, sort of that there was a political narrative into which it fitted and had to fit. I was seen as part of the process of reconciliation. The other aspect of Bloody Sunday, I think, which doesn't match that of many of the other atrocities and difficulties and killings and loss of life that have been the focus of uh, uh, inquiries, it was this that Bloody Sunday happened in broad daylight. You know, this wasn't something that people had to report. It happened on a very crisp, clear winter's afternoon, a completely blue sky. It happened in a very confined area. It happened maybe no circle of 150 yards would cover all of the killings. And because the shooting happened immediately after a civil rights march was by about 10,000 strong, who had then come down to what turned out to be a, the area of the killings on a, a bloody Sunday. And people scurried, of course, to get behind walls and to get into homes or flats, I mean, as soon as the shooting started. Every killing and wounding on Bloody Sunday was witnessed usually by scores of people, sometimes at very close quarters. I mean, I saw people being killed on Bloody Sunday. I mean, nobody had to tell me what happened in relation uh, to those particular killings. I was lying in the gutter looking at them about 50, 60 yards away. One of the key things, it seems to me, about the Bloody Sunday experience is that nobody in Derry, or no, none of those who have participated in that march, had to wait for a judicial inquiry to tell them what had happened. What they were waiting for was to see whether it would tell the truth. They knew the truth already, sort of in, in a lot of detail. Eamon, forgive me, that's the reason why I wanted to just pursue this point that Yvette started with, which is whether or not, even if you pursue the truth, and if you feel as though you know the truth, whether or not the public inquiry serves as an act of catharsis, if you like. It, it, it ensures that those responsible acknowledge the truth, and there is something, no doubt, enormously important and valuable in that, but it's not the same as justice. It's not the same as people being held responsible for what they did. 
No, and, they, and of course, the only person being held responsible, and of course, mustn't anticipate what will happen in that trial, is one uh, Lance Corporal. One lowly soldier is being held responsible and has been charged in relation to an incident in which uh, 13 people uh, died, sort of, and 15 people were wounded, one of whom died shortly afterwards. Only one soldier, I mean, charged with any offence at all. Now, this is ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous. And that was a result of, I mean, there were 435 days of evidence to the Bloody Sunday Inquiry spread over five years. There were 900 people gave oral evidence. There were 1,500 additional uh, written statements handed in. So there's an incredible mass of evidence. And of course, that, that's why it took another five years for uh, Lord Saville and his colleagues actually to produce a report. What Saville didn't do, uh, and I think this was very important that he should have done it, but didn't do, was to check the chain of command. Who actually ordered, who organised Bloody Sunday? Who gave the command? What was the role of? I mean, I could run through the names. I don't know if it would be libelous at the moment to do it. So if you were actually directly involved in that. I, I think that's important. You're saying that even when you have a public inquiry, which as dramatically as the Savile Inquiry did, seemed to fundamentally change the dynamics around the British government and and. Uh, Bloody Sunday, you did have the British Prime Minister, you know, apologising in Parliament, acknowledging the responsibility. It was a huge change. Even then, to many people, it's not the whole version of the truth. And I suppose, you know, just taking it back to Grenfell and taking it back to where we started with Yvette, something very significant has changed between 1972 and and what happened in uh, at Grenfell, which is, of course, social media. What would have happened in 72 would have been that everyone would have had film and footage and would have had an account. And so what I'm trying to figure out is what's the role of a public inquiry when that version of the truth that circulated in Derry that you witnessed was publicly available? What's the role of the public inquiry then if it's not in some ways, if you like, to reestablish a version of the truth that may be either more bureaucratic or more in uh, in the – uh, frame and the terms set by the establishment rather than the public themselves. So I think it's... Yeah, no, Yvette, go, come in and I'll come back to Eamon. But I wanted to pick up on something Eamon said about you don't always get the whole truth. And that is to actually look at a good example of a public inquiry, which is the Lawrence McPherson inquiry. That does come out with good recommendations at the end. And, you know, we get an amended race relations act, you know, we get a public sector equality duty, all those things in place. However, we don't get all the truth there because a decade later, they then find out that they had undercover police spying on their campaign. So what kind of truth are we getting from public inquiry? 
$45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. I wanted to bring in my colleague Chris Cook, if I might, because, you know, Chris is, you know, covered Whitehall, covered government in its different workings for many years. And and I wonder, Chris, whether or not you think sort of, if you like, my, my posture on this is unfair, but my, my kind of starting suspicion is that these public inquiries essentially diffuse a difficult political situation, which is why politicians reach for them. But when it comes to lessons learned, they don't fundamentally change the way in which the establishment Whitehall government works. Is that unfair? Do you think they can have a real impact? I think if you take a long look over the 20th century and you go back to things like the Griffiths Report, which was the report into the collapse of Ronan Point, a block of flats, which thank goodness, I think no one died actually, but it was a 22-storey building in Silvertown in East London, which just fell down basically on, uh, because someone, um, someone's gas stove backfired. No one died basically because it wasn't yet full because it was a brand new building. The Griffiths Report is from 1968, I think, and it is a, it's a whitewash. Blokes come in who discuss the person whose oven wasn't properly maintained. They discuss at great lengths the maintenance of the oven. They talk about how it's a bit of a shame. The you know mistakes were made, all a bit of a shame. We shouldn't do this anymore. Bit of a rum do, and we still have several thousands of the buildings that were put up to the same design of Ronan Point up around the UK today. We never really dealt with it. These early inquiries have tended to be whitewashed. I mean, there may be some selection bias here because we only talk about the ones that we redo, but there was a long history of the of the establishment genuinely closing ranks. And I can understand why when, when Lawrence started his work, why people would probably be a bit apprehensive about whether he would be, you know, tell, would tell the truth because there was this long history of this stuff. But they have got better and better and better. I would also highlight the, the Freedom of Information Act as an important role in this. So Hillsborough in particular... People put in FOI requests, people looked at the documents they'd asked for and had a, oh boy, like, oh, okay, okay, like this is really bad. And the the process of being able to ask for the documents was part of the campaigning mechanism that people were able to use to build the case for the inquiry. So the inquiry was it was effectively a was an outcrop of campaigning by FOI. It's not just that the, we have a less deferential society than we had, we have a more open government than we had, we have higher standards about what we expect from Lawrence is able to go out in public without being, you know, abused because he'd done his job. And whereas actually, if he hadn't done his job, he, you know, would be vilified. Martin Morbick has high pressure because his name is well known. So it's a higher pressure society for, for engagement in public life than now than it was 50 years ago when the Griffiths report could come out and be a whitewash, when Widgery could come out and be a whitewash. 
I, and Chris, I'm interested to ask you one question, though. Just I, I want to just follow up on Yvette's point about McPherson and, and the Lawrence inquiry, which is this sense that actually things did change in, in government, that, that there are inquiries that do have a real-world impact. What are the circumstances, what are the terms of an inquiry that enable that to happen? Or is it simply the, the character of the people on them? So I think there are a few things. So I think the, um, the most important one is that there's actually a clear idea of what success would look like. Savile and and Chilcot are harder inquiries because they're not trying to solve a discrete problem we can all agree is a problem, right? That is to say, the if you think that the problem was ever invading Iraq and that can never have worked, what are you going to learn from this? Similarly, if you think that Operation Banner, the army operations in Northern Ireland were justified and important and they had to do what they had to do, there are a lot of people who could never be convinced on this stuff, right? You go and go and look right now in the Protestant villages for the Soldier F banners which are basically anti-Savile ballots, in effect, right? The Grenfell Inquiry has a real chance to do something really good, though, because it's really clear we're all against fire. We're all really clear that we want this to never happen again. It's a more straightforward, it's obviously not a straightforward thing, but it's more straightforward politically to sort of coalesce around that. The thing I'm really struck by with following the Grenfell Inquiry, though, is how little more we know now than we knew a month after the fire. I don't mean to say that we don't, you know, we've known, we've learned an enormous amount and I don't wish to depress Kate by suggesting that following the inquiry hasn't been worthwhile. But at the end of the first month, we kind of knew, yes, there were problems in relation to the management of the, of the organisation, but whatever happened at Grenfell was a very specifically terrible problem, failure of design, regulation, building that happened across the country. It's a very extreme version of a national problem exacerbated probably by the fact that we think that residents weren't listened to with their genuine concerns weren't heard. And I feel like we're in the same place now. Kate, just do you want to respond to that? And in particular, actually, do you want to respond to the, I suppose, the fundamental point I was putting to Chris, which is there's this terrible phrase when public inquiries are called, that we must sort of lance the boil, that somehow, you know, the sort of public's fury must be addressed. But in the process, we may come up with the pedantic pursuit of the truth, but a fundamental diversion from justice that, you know, politically, this is convenient. There's a catharsis for the public, but but nothing is resolved. And I wonder whether in sitting at the inquiry, whether you have a view on that. I think the first thing to say is that if you were just using a public inquiry as a way to diffuse temporary anger, it's not the world's greatest plan because as of October to December this year, we know that we're going to have to hear from the government who over many, many years made decisions about these regulations themselves. There will be questions to Eric Pickles about the findings that they had from the Lackland House inquest and why those weren't acted on. There will be questions about the warnings that they had about the materials um, and the dangers that, that there were. We've heard in the inquiry that the DCLG, as it then was, the Department of Communities and Local Government knew that combustible materials were being marketed for high-rise buildings at the time. So if you're making a short-term decision in this way, having your findings examined in public in the national media is probably not the greatest plan. More widely, I spend a lot of time talking to people, to bereaved, to family members about what they want from the inquiry. And, And they mention three things. They mention truth, they say they want change, and they say they want justice to be seen to be done, Right. The inquiry is limited in what change it can make. It can make recommendations, but it can't make the change itself. It's limited in justice being seen to be done because essentially what people mean by that is individuals in the dock, right? And in the case of Grenfell, you're much more likely to get corporate charges, fines for people. But 
When you talk to people, they also say that if they can't see individuals in the dock, what they want is for a culture to be brought to light that caused this. And the tr- that's the truth. And that's what it's, what's important to people. And they also talk about how important it is for them and the catharsis that they get from being able to sit in a room and look people in the eyes as they give evidence with the feeling that they can see that these people, as they give evidence, as they talk about the decisions they made, can see the people that they impacted through those decisions. And they talk about how important that is. That's why there's a particular controversy about the inquiry going online, going virtually in the time of COVID at the moment, because people want to sit there and they want to make that eye contact. Eamon, do you recognise that? Do you recognise that there's there's a social function to these public inquiries in terms of, you know, people? I don't know whether this was your experience in Savile. People actually be, being able to 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 recognise and 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 be seen uh, in their experience of campaigning for justice and truth. In general terms, yes. I mean, people did welcome the fact that they that they were heard. On, on, on the other hand, I mean, the Bloody Sunday inquiry was the most overtly political of any of the incidents uh, uh, that we're talking about. There was a very considerable section of the population here in Derry who, in the aftermath, regarded the soldiers and some of the individual soldiers who were most, if you like, demonised by one section of the community as being heroes. From where I sit, I can see the soldier F flags you know, with the parachute regiments insignia on them, flying around there. And if you go through, uh, I mean, some of the uh, unionist uh, uh, villages, they're festooned. And they either they say that it's all lies and he's completely innocent, or in greater numbers, they will say that whether he shot these people uh, or not, there was a war on, and what about all the other atrocities which were uh, uh, committed? And that, of course, is a circular argument which should go on uh, uh, forever. You know, but if you're looking for truth and justice, it seems to me that the one big thing missing after the uh, Savile inquiry is uh, the fact that the higher up in the ranks that you go, both political and military, the less likely it is that you have suffered in your reputation at all. And that, as I mentioned before, is resulting Soldier F is the one person, one person, a Lance Corporal. They held up this. If I were, and this has been said by some of the families who have campaigned for so long, and some of them are very anti-British, it's a constant thing and a common thing here said around Derry that Soldier F has been treated unfairly. The whole establishment, political and military, should bear responsibility for this rather than one person. So when you say sort of hasn't reached the truth, it's a nuanced and complicated and, you know, so what truth do you want? I mean, as a, 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 just the a prime minister of the day, Edward Heath, who in advance of the soldiers uh, going across, ordered them across and then told Lord Wedgbury, the Lord Chief Justice, when you go there and conduct an inquiry, remember that we are fighting not just a military war, but a propaganda war. It uh, exposes the possibility that the whole thing's a fit up. You know, so I don't believe, I don't think it's a waste of time. I think a lot of good come out of it and so on. But you can see why people would think that. Lawrence? I, I mean, it's a real problem of getting at the chain of command, even, even with Iraq. And, and part of that was because so many people, there's such a turnover at the top, of generals and brigadiers and so on. Can I say something about the looking them in the eye? One of the things, oddly, that, that, that happened with our hearings, a lot of the officials and ambassadors and so on, is it humanised them. I mean, you, you know, these are you could see these are people who've been wrestling with really difficult problems and were upset about what had happened and, you know, wanted their story down. And your point is that that, that humanises both those in authority, those in power, and humanises those who've been victims who suffered, that, they're, they're, that there's a value to that. You're not going to have a problem humanising the people who've suffered 
what you realize is people in authority don't necessarily have as much authority as you think they have and, and they would like to have. One of the things that happened after the inquiry is at the Edinburgh Festival, they had this sort of tent where people went in for an hour and they read it and, and they had their thoughts. I couldn't get to the festival early enough to participate in this, but I chatted to the people who'd done it. And they found it fascinating. People would say they understood a lot better when they read about the bureaucratic comings and goings, how this happened. It was in a bad day in the office sort of thing. You, you People look for conspiracies, and sometimes they're there. I mean, some people have plotted. But a lot of the time, they've just screwed up, or things have just got too difficult. On that note, Lawrence, we are, as you suspected earlier in the conversation, you know, th- this discussion is to a purpose, which is there is a debate now about the need for a COVID inquiry. Um, you know, it's no secret to say I, th- I think a COVID inquiry is sorely needed. But as I thought about it more, the more I've worried about whether or not it's it, it serves a political purpose but doesn't end up sp- serving the public. And so I wondered whether given, you know, everyone's different experience of this, if you were thinking about, you know, if it's point at the top, you know, so much depends on the terms of reference that are set for this inquiry and the requirements that are uh, made of it. If you were framing a COVID inquiry now, how would you do it? I'm, and I might, if, it, if it's all right, start with you, Lawrence, having been through Chilcot, if you were thinking now about a COVID inquiry, what would you expect of it and when? So in some ways, it's already started. There's masses of stuff. Select committees have produced reports. There's no shortage of material. What I would do would have something, as I mentioned before, that was pretty open, agile, flexible, would have different streams. It wouldn't be a single inquiry. You'd have a number of inquiries under the same umbrella, looking at the provision of equipment, and perhaps looking at, at contracts, looking at why the problems with testing and trace, looking at, uh, you know, why things went right with the vaccination. There, there are good stories in this as well as bad. So I, I, I think you could set it up quite quickly. I don't. I think you would give it a lot of different tasks and you'd have different bits doing that. And then some overall control, pulling it all together and producing reports as they went along. Chris Cook? So, I mean, I think I'd, I'd agree with, with Lawrence. I think there's no... Um, I also, I'd also be quite optimistic that it could be effective. I can't see why it wouldn't be, particularly if large portions of it were effectively operational questions. There are lots of things about this that are will be... Lots of the conclusions will be sort of technical and not... They won't be apolitical, but they will be conducive to being sort of accepted by all parties. I'm quite optimistic about getting a good inquiry out of Grenfell too, actually. So I report on the day of the fire... There's this thing called Renault Bond PE50, which is this aluminium clad panelling that goes on the outside. There's this thing called cladding. You know, I spent the day of the fire looking at other fires to sort of check my instinct that this was the thing. And there was this parallel set of reporting going on, which was basically taking the testimony of people like Yvette, actually, who had really strong clues about what they thought was going on and what happened. We were kind of on different tracks, a lot of reporters and a lot of the local people about what we were investigating. But I feel like over the last few years, we've got closer and closer and closer together. Chris, thank you. Yvette, do you want to respond to that, the idea that actually through the process, through the process of reporting, through the process of discussion, but even through the public inquiry process, people are coming together around an understanding of what happened? I'd love you to answer that. And I'd also really be interested to hear how you would draft the terms of a COVID inquiry? 
I do think people are coming together more in terms of their thinking, but I think Grenfell's going to miss a huge piece of what needs addressing in our society. You have to understand the people that lived in Grenfell, the former residents and also the victims. The majority of the victims are from African, Caribbean, Middle Eastern, Asian background, large Muslim demographic in there as well. And if you look at how they're treated in society just generally, those people, the lens they look through, they have no confidence at all in establishment or government. They see it as, you know, that old school network, that, you know, jobs and profits for their mates, all that kind of stuff. And I think the Grenfell inquiry had a moment to change that. But, but what, you, what you describe, Yvette, is exactly what people will suspect happens in the COVID inquiry. So how do you make sure that that doesn't happen? Right. So I wrote some things down as she was going along. I think the first thing is think about the chair that you put in and the panel. It'd be good to see a diverse panel. When we ask for diverse panels, we don't mean just put in any black or brown face. We want somebody with that lived experience. I think there's a whole socioeconomic piece on looking at where the key workers were. And I think that also brings up, for me, race again especially off the back of George Floyd and Black Lives Matter, why we're still in a society where disproportionately Black and Asian and minority ethnic communities come off the worst. And, and Kate Lamble, sitting as you do, listening to the Grenfell inquiry, if you can imagine your next assignment sitting, listening to the COVID inquiry, how should it be run? So I think one thing that made a big difference at the Grenfell inquiry to increase confidence was at the beginning, it held pen portraits. People were able to come up, talk about the loved ones that they lost and to put them at the centre. So I still remember from the very beginning, every time I hear technical evidence, I think about the person that I know who loves Steven Seagal movies or the person I know who was who was a great cook or, you know, the person I know who's involved in the sound system at Carnival. That sticks with people and is very important for putting people and the, those that affected at the centre of things. We've heard about speed, about rolling recommendations being important, about it being important for an inquiry to have teeth. But I also think Chris talked about how at the beginning, sort of in the days after the fire, he was like, oh, I did some Googling, I figured out it was the cladding, kind of hasn't changed. For me, I disagree. The detail that inquiries have, even though speed is important, is also essential. The detail that the inquiry goes into allows you to go through the 999 calls and the advice that was given to people on a case-by-case basis. And that allows us to understand why it's really important that actually 999 callers were never given training of how to give advice to people with English as an additional language. The training and the implementation of that that we know can make a difference is very important. And that's why detail is important. So I also produce more or less the Radio 4 series. And during the COVID crisis, I've made hundreds and hundreds of pieces on testing. I can tell you practically everything about it. The suggestion that we would go into a public inquiry and I would find out a detail that I didn't already know is unbelievable, right? We have to take the time to understand it. I, it's frustrating and it's part of the process, but it's one of the most fundamental issues of getting to the truth. Kate, thank you. Um, Before I try and pull it all together, I just want to come back for one final thought from you, Yvette. Uh, And it goes back to the initial question that I asked about whether truth and justice are are different things. I think we've talked a fair bit about what the truth might end up looking like in terms of the Grenfell Inquiry. What would justice look like? Oh, 
I think there's still, going back a little bit, I think there is still something in justice delayed is justice denied. I can understand that the inquiry is um, uncovering a lot, but why could a criminal investigation not uncover the same things? And then the implementation of the recommendations for the bereaved families, they can't bring their loved ones back. So they need something to hold on to. And I think that is a clear, for me, a clear picture of justice. Thank you. Um, the, the nature of these thinkings is they're rather like an editorial conference. At the end of it, you're, you're trying to, or at least to hope, you'll have come out with a clearer, certainly a better informed point of view. I certainly have that. And actually, in my own way, I have to say thank you, because I've also got a better sense of what I think about uh, public inquiries. I've had, as I suppose you could hear, this sense that when you call for a public inquiry, you should do so with a heavy heart, not just because you're investigating a tragic event, but because you know the risks of a public inquiry. You know that there's a possibility that you are going to uh, diffuse the immediate public anger and delay the answers for a good long time. You know that there is a risk and you've got to be extremely alive to the possibility that you're going going to disrupt the potential of going to court, that the criminal justice process is going to in some way be interrupted by the public inquiry itself. And I think the point that, you know, uh, Eamon and, and Lawrence made, and it's obviously particularly clear in the case of Grenfell too, that this chain of command point, this higher-ups point, that it, rather than exposing the powerful, in some way that this blizzard of detail will somehow so contextualise the crisis, the tragedy, the, 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 the terrible event, that it, rather than exposing the powerful, it exonerates them. And so I suppose I'm much, much more reluctant when I think about public inquiries to call for them as I kind of readily as many journalists do. But I would come away with two really big and helpful thoughts. One is, I think the distinction that you made, Yvette, between public inquiry and a government inquiry is really significant here. And I suppose if we're looking to a COVID inquiry, when the government itself is the subject of the investigation, we really need to think about what are the guarantors that this is the public's inquiry, not quote unquote, a public inquiry. And then the second thing that I found extremely uh, helpful, these distinctions that Kate made about truth, justice and change, and that those three things are, of course, different. And their interests are not all necessarily equally served by a public inquiry. Change is important of itself, but if there's not coordination between the inquiry and government, it's a problem. Um, truth uh, might only be, in the end, partially served, and I take aim on your point, that we'd be naive to think we end up with a consensus. You know, there's still going to be polarisation. There's still going to be whataboutery. Um, but, but I do appreciate the value of, you know, what Lawrence called a reliable account right? Because it means that the world is less susceptible to untruths in the future and, and less susceptible to lies becoming accepted as facts. Um, so I think there's something very valuable. I still feel that the real issue here around public inquiries is the issue that we began with, that it may advance the cause of truth, but it might hold up, delay or deny the possibility of justice. And I think that's the most difficult thing about the conversation we've had today. But I hope that 
It's been interesting for you to compare notes on public inquiries. It's certainly been fascinating for me in terms of thinking about getting better understanding. So finally, I just wanted to say a, a big thank you to, to Chris, to Eamon, to Lawrence, to Kate, to Yvette. Thank you for making the time uh, to have this conversation and be part of this thinking. Since we've recorded this thinking, I've kept coming back to that point of Yvette's about public inquiries really being government inquiries. It's made me think more about how to make them independent, but at the same time, ensure that they're not ineffectual, ensure that they really are joined up and they have an effect on what happens to institutions and to government. I guess that's the task of the COVID inquiries, to make sure they're independent, but not ineffectual. Thank you so much for listening to this thinking. And if you want to come to a thinking, if you want to take part in our efforts to understand and make the news, you can do that by becoming a member of Tortoise. You go to tortoisemedia.com, you sign up, and you can use my code, James50, to get 50% off. And when you do that, you can get all of our journalism, access to all of our podcasts and all of our reporting. And most importantly, you can come to the discussions that we hold, our open news meetings, our thinkings. Please do. It would be great to see you and hear you help us make the news. Thank you for listening to The Battle for Truth. I'm James Harding. My producer is Katie Gunning. Tom Kinsella wrote the original music. And it's a podcast from Tortoise Studios, which is run by Kerry Thomas. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.